Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Book Club. First rule of Book Club is you must always talk about Book Club. Second rule of Book Club is tell everyone about Book Club. Hello and welcome to this episode of IRC Book Club. I'm Johnny Graham. I'm with my colleague, co-host, friend, business partner, life partner, God, who knows, Michael Price, who is very festive today. Yes, I was going to say, for those of you who are listening to it just in Apple Podcasts, you are missing out on my Christmas attire. Brilliant. I am wearing a handmade suit, blue, that is decorated with snowflakes. What more do you want? This is it now, listeners. For those of you who don't know, and I mean, we've been doing the show a while now, so we've probably talked about this before. The moment December begins, Mike turns into Mr. Christmas. I've got my Where's Wally advent calendar. The Do you know what I did last night on the advent calendar, Pricey? Gillian bought me a, a Miniature Heroes advent calendar, and I was on the bike for an hour before I, I went in the house. Don't tell me you've eaten more dates. I've eaten all of it. <laughs> <laughs> That's a funny thing to do. I messaged the missus, she was away in London on business, I messaged the missus and I said, I'm so sorry, you might need to get me a new advent calendar. <laughs> anyway, we're here talking about sales books today, and we're on the final furlong of Selling the Cloud, a playbook for success in cloud software and enterprise sales by Mark Petruzzi and Paul Melchiore, both of whom we had on the show last week. I was going to mention that, actually. You know, if you do listen to these uh, podcasts, the one you should be listening to first, actually, I think, is the interview with them. Yeah, it was a good interview, I thought, last week. I thought they were both properly top guys, I thought. I'll tell you, Paul has introduced me. He said he'd introduced me to somebody he mentioned during... The after party. Yeah, and he mentioned this client that he's working with. And I said, I pounced, and I said, well, obviously an introduction there would be nice. And I thought nothing of it, and I did follow it up, and I made a note. And he's introduced me to this company, Fair Play. He's introduced me to the Chief Revenue Officer this morning. Do you know why that is, though, Johnny? That's because he's a top guy. And you do know what the top guys do? They don't lie, they just do what they say they're going to do. Don't promise if you can't deliver, but if you can deliver, then make the promise. Fair play. Yeah, fair play. And in return, we'll get to the book in a minute, actually. If I had a client that said, yeah, I'm looking for some sales training, what do you reckon? I couldn't see why you wouldn't introduce those two guys, thought they were top guys. Absolutely. In terms of, for example, a non-exec director's role or something like that, they are top guys. Now, something we need to mention to our audience and something you don't know about yet, Michael, but Alex and I have been discussing, and I think is very important for our audience, is this is IRC Book Club. The whole idea of IRC Book Club is me and you get together and we talk about a book. And as our audience, you kind of join us on the journey. And what we've done, Alex and I, is we've decided we're going to extend that journey. We're going to take it away from LinkedIn as a conversation because nobody uses LinkedIn groups anymore. So what we have done is set up a Discord chat Discord is kind of a gaming platform where people go in and use it as a chat platform. It's really neat. If you want an invite to the Discord chat and you want an invite to the Discord room to talk about the books on Book Club, please do hit us up. DM us on LinkedIn, drop us an email, text us, and we'll make sure that me or Alex will sort you out with an invite to the Discord chat. Without any further ado, let's begin. We were at chapter number seven, Michael. Entitled Trust trust so what do you make of this one then uh well without actually referencing the book but just talking about trust 
I'll give you a very good example. So one of my clients is the sales director for pretty big Microsoft partner. Right. About 10 years ago, he had a second interview via me and he had an offer somewhere else. And he phoned me not to cancel my second interview, actually, but he phoned me to say, what should I do? And I said, listen, Dave, what you should do is you should take the offer that you've got because I think that's the right thing to do. And I did 100% believe that would be the right thing to do. Right. And then what that's created between he and I is trust. Yes. And now we have a very different relationship. And as a consequence of that, he hires better. Now, the thing with trust is, and I think the book goes on to say this, is people try and fake trust. They try and create false trust. And that is where a lot of people, salespeople, fall down. How do people manufacture trust? So I'll give you another example then. So when I was at university, I went to the fine University of Hull, as referenced on Blackadder. Yeah. And to pay my way through university, I was double-glazing salesman. My job was foot canvas to book appointments. Yeah. One day I was luckily, and it was in a promotion at the time, promoted to actually flogging plastic and glass, as they referred to it as in Hull. Right. And Was it like an episode of white gold pricing? Oh, it's like, it was like that, 100%. The guy, Eddie, had a green a green BMW 5 Series. He was <laughs> the business. So me and Eddie, we walked into this house and we were sat opposite a coffee table and I was sat on the same side as him. He dropped a £5 note. Before I could say anything about it, he grabbed my hand and he clearly didn't want to reference it. After about 10 minutes, he picked up this fiver and he said, oh, there's a skydiver on the floor. And he gave it to the people. They went, oh, no, it's not mine. In Hull, politely to people, they say five. They said, it's not my five pounds. But yeah, My five pounds. And he went, well, it's not my five pounds. And he persuaded them that it must be their five pounds that had fallen under the sofa. And in that moment, he had created trust. But that's the artificial manufacturing of trust. That's what I'm talking about, yeah. And it's horrifically insincere. Yes. And that, I think, you know, is where, you know, you talk about this book and the context of it is he talks about earning and maintaining trust. What Eddie Lee had done is he had falsely created trust, but was he ever able to maintain that and go back? No, because it was created on a falsehood. And actually, I think true trust is created on truth and honesty, which in fairness, Johnny, I know a lot of people fall out with you. Well, more people fall out with you than me, I would say. By and large, that's because you tell them the truth. And then those people tend to resurface at some point because you were the person that told them the truth when nobody else wanted to tell them. It's a tough one, isn't it? And, and what they're talking about in the book here is the bottom line is when your customers and partners do not trust you, they will not buy from you, partner with you, or refer you for new opportunities. Don't agree with that. Do you not? No. When your customers and partners do not trust you, they will not buy from you. I think customers will buy from you, but they will buy from you in a different way. Yes, I agree. And you will be a much more transactional supplier and you will never be a sole supplier and you'll never get deep into an organization, will you? There's an arm's length thing with any transaction. It's in any relationship, there's an arm's length thing, isn't there? You have an awkward relationship. You know, if you look at the LinkedIn platform as a prime example, nobody can do without it, but does anybody actually like using it? No. You know, I, I think a lot of these polls and whatever, they suggest that. Now, what's interesting in this book, actually, I like a good model. Um, they've got a model on page 107 out of 195, which talks about intimacy-based relationships. So they say... There's different levels. And, and actually, if you read the book, and I'm not going to recite it because it would be too boring, but they talk about the different levels of trust you can have with a prospect, which I thought was actually pretty interesting. 
And then they talk about what to do if your trust is violated. Yeah. And they say six steps to take after trust violation. Acknowledge, address feelings, get support, take responsibility, appreciate forgiveness, move on and learn. I think that's really important, isn't it? That if you lose somebody's trust and actually you try to gain their trust uh, in an authentic way, sometimes they lose trust accidentally and you've got to actually... Well, sometimes organisations lose trust for the salesperson, don't they? Well, that's a good example, yes. You know, often we'll speak to candidates and they'll say, why are you looking to move away from job X or job Y? And they'll say, well, I've made promises I can't keep here to my customers, so I'm kind of in a no-win situation. If I stay, uh, I've had it before where they've said, I've got to move, otherwise I've burned that prospect cohort. I have to be seen to have taken action on the fact that we've let them down. Well, it's a bit like resigning, isn't it? When you resign, what happens really at a very deep level is your employer can't trust you. Yes. You've broken the bond of trust that you have between employee and employer. Yes. You know, that again is trust, isn't it? It is. The thing about trust is sometimes I think there are moments where you just create trust, aren't there, in a working relationship. And a lot of that is honesty, doing the right thing, doing the right thing when it might be damaging to your respective, being firm on that. I do think there's an element of a salesperson, and I, I think you've got to be careful, is this whole concept of being the trusted advisor. You know I hate the phrase anyway, and I hate anybody that identifies as rather than as a salesperson. But that notwithstanding, I, I think the biggest danger with this whole trust thing is trying to manufacture it, and not in an eddy kind of way, but in a, I'm sat looking for opportunities to prove how trustworthy I am. Yes. Yes, I agree. So it's not necessarily being as wide as throwing a fiver on the floor. It's, ooh, 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 here's an opportunity to show I'm trustworthy. Yes. I think is actually less trustworthy. Well, it's just insincere, isn't it? And actually, I hate the word authenticity. I really, It's really beginning to annoy me. Well, it's a very 2021 word, isn't it? I think a lot of salespeople actually are inauthentic by trying to create trust in that way. We talked about this, didn't we, about the inauthenticity of not saying you're a salesperson. And authenticity is being you. I think the word you use is congruent. Yeah, you've got to be congruent with what you are. Just you are what you are. And actually, yeah, the people who do really well are the ones whose natural human self turns up in front of the customer. Completely again. But it's not easy to be one's natural human self. You know, we were talking before we went on air about a candidate that I'm working with at the moment. He's a very young lad. I've nicknamed him Tigger. He really is authentic, isn't he? He's authentic, but he's a bit inauthentic because he's trying so hard to be an energetic young salesperson. Don't you think that's just him, though? I think that's him. Well, I think part of it is that he's authentically full of beans. What's the to not be full of beans about? He's 24... He's got his own flat, he's got a lovely girlfriend, he's got a little car. What, what's there to not be full of beans about in his life? Completely agree. Completely agree. So he's full of life and he's got energy, but a lot of it comes across like, I'm trying to be an energetic salesman. What's interesting here is he says, here are some of Charlie. I can't remember. Charlie's something to do with Cloud Titan or something from memory. Oh, uh, once we get to these Titan things, I binned it. Uh, I read read it. It's quick to read, but he says, um, I like this. When you don't know something, say so. Yeah. 95% of sales reps will make up an answer. So it's interesting. I'm doing some work at the minute 
for a big uh, low-code vendor who are looking for somebody in France, somebody in Holland, two separate roles. And a guy said to me this afternoon, pretty heavyweight guy, earned an awful lot. He said, he asked me a question. I went, listen, I just don't know the answer to that. And literally, it was like all of a sudden, I just become his best friend. It was grateful that I'd said, I don't know the answer to that question. But I think people want to know that, don't they? Rather than trying to blag it. Yeah. I think that's important. Yes. Yeah. And they talk about here, you know, what to do if trust is violated, the power of FaceTime. I do think that when things aren't right, it's very easy in this modern world where we're connected to each other on Teams, we're connected to the client on Teams or Slack or whatever. Sometimes just picking up the blowers is a lot easier. You know, I've had a conversation this afternoon with a client where we've had two candidates come in and out pretty quickly, but I picked up the blower and didn't send an email. Yeah, I completely agree. If I'd sent an email, he'd have never spoke to me again. Yeah, completely. you're absolutely right. But actually, we've had it out, me and him, this afternoon. I know, you mean, he's a very reasonable, nice man, isn't he, in fairness to him? What was interesting was he was very defensive at the start, really defensive. And then towards the end of the conversation, what was really more interesting was it was like, well, actually, now in hindsight, the more I think about it, I think we could have done a lot of things differently. I think the candidates could have done a few things differently. Hence, I'm going to give a bit of time to think about it. But the fact that we rang and we bounced it around and we talked about it. Completely agree. And he could very easily have just pointed the finger and said, you placed two duffers with us. Well, that's obviously what we get blamed with. I mean, I had a similar one a few months ago. I told you about it where I dropped the ball horrendously. <laughs> I mean, it was just very unlike the price of Tron 3000. And I phoned the sales director and said, listen, I've dropped the ball. This is what I've done. Right. He's still my client. Yeah. He's still my client, that man. Yeah. Um, so then on to chapter eight. I thought this was quite interesting and I didn't know what to make of it, but um, he talks about trust-based go-to market models. I mean... I, I, trust-based go-to market models. Yeah, and it, and it goes on to talk about the strategic alliance ecosystem. Oh, yeah, I found this chapter a bit dull, if I'm honest. I actually wrote, I just don't get why this chapter is here on page 133. Fair enough. Well, the only interesting bit I got out of it was when he was talking about the strategic alliance ecosystem. Yeah. Because I think if you're going to be in that ecosystem, it's a model based on trust, isn't it? If you're Accenture and I'm SAP, I've got to trust that you're going to do the right thing you know, with my client, if I bring you in. And then actually what you're doing is I'm allowing and trusting you to be fair with my client, so I've got to trust you an awful lot to do it. And I think in modern IT, that's a very important sort of facet, really, because particularly when you get into the, the you know, the VAR market, you know, all those fellas that sell second-hand computers or whatever it is they do on the VAR 100 list but never want to be referred to it, um, I would suspect that very hard to trust the relationship between the VARs and vendors there that you're not going to get stiffed and they have deal registration forms and blah, blah, blah. And because there's no trust or not enough trust in that market, it creates a sort of cowboy-style market in that market, I think. Mm. I think the whole thing with the alliances, Mike, that's quite interesting, is the more we move towards cloud selling and the more we move towards pure cloud technology environments, it seems to me that the more alliances-driven jobs we see, because, as an example, a lot of those SaaS-based vendors are only as good as the quality of their integration partnerships, and therefore they have to forge wider and more detailed partnerships and alliances than perhaps companies previously had to. 
Maybe, but don't you think the low-code market and the and the ability of the low-code market for citizen developers to build APIs between platforms is lessening that? No, because actually, if I'm a low-code vendor, I'm only as good as my ability to open the APIs to integration partners. I don't know. I mean, I don't know. It'd be interesting to get a low-code seller on to talk about that. But I, my understanding of how low-code works is I could go out and buy SAP ERP S4 HANA and I could stick it on an Oracle database because I can use a low-code platform to build API between the two things. I think that's a bit ambitious technologically. Anyway, uh, the next bit then is about hiring right. And, and it's interesting because we're reading another sales book actually about sales management. And he starts off saying, effectively, leading a sales team requires perfecting a balance between exerting pressure and getting out of your team's way. And I think there's an age difference here, isn't there? I was talking to one of my clients, actually. Remember when we uh, fired somebody and put all their stuff in a cardboard box? And then every time we brought a cardboard box in, everyone else thought they were going to get fired? That They'd all literally, it was bonkers, they'd all just sit there and smash their phones all day. All we had to do was turn up with a cardboard box. It wasn't an intentional thing. And I said this to one of my clients. I said, why didn't you do that? And he just rolled around laughing. He said, Mike, in the current sales environment, I'm nervous people will leave. I just can't put pressure on them. No. Very interesting, isn't it, that? I've never known an environment in which the position of the sales leader is as weak as it is right now. Yeah, and all the power is with the seller. Yeah. If you're hitting your target or getting close to it, you are golden because you're just employable anywhere else. But I think if you're a Muppet, you're golden. I think at the moment, if you are not hitting target, your mobility of labor is so great that even a guy that's underperforming leaves a sales leader in a very weak position. Quite possibly. What's interesting is he goes here, sales is a competitive space and competition is first for good talent, especially in the SaaS ecosystem. Uh, I mean, he's quite right about that, Venice. There's a couple of things. I mean, okay, page 142. Do not discount the relationship builder. I was about to say exactly that. I'm on the same page. What would you make of that? I mean, I hate that as a phrase. <laughs> but what I found interesting is in the more enterprise space, I mean, everybody preaches on about the fact that they're good at building relationships. But actually, very few people actually are good at building relationships. So when a client goes, yeah, I want a relationship builder, I always hear a note of caution and say, yeah, I reckon you'd be better off hiring somebody who was more bothered about sales target first and relationship second. But then I, I catch myself on that because all the insight, and he goes on about some review, but it was done in 2008, says that you know we have to value that more. And, and then he references Challenger. Oh, I don't know about that. Which neither of us have that much respect for anyway. Yeah, completely agree, yeah. Completely agree. Um, don't know. I thought the more interesting page was the five profiles of sales professionals, hard worker, challenger, relationship builder, lone wolf, and problem solver. Now, me, I'm a hard worker and a problem solver. Right. Personally. Because um, I do help clients find problems. But I think if you're a hard worker and a problem solver, you become a relationship builder. I think if you're a lone wolf that delivers, you become a relationship builder. And I think if you're a challenger, actually, what you really are is assessing and finding problems. So you become a relationship builder. So I think being a relationship builder is a consequence of one of the others anyway. You know, why, why do clients have relationships with you? Because you get the job done. Full stop. That's it. You get it done and you do what you say you're going to do. And you listen. <laughs> you know, it all melds, doesn't it? Most good listeners are good relationship builders because people feel listened to and therefore bond with the individual. 
So the person who gets it, has empathy, is a good listener, might be an absolute lone wolf nutcase. But if he's listening and he can fake empathy, then he's going to build good relationships with the clients. Well, I'll tell you, I've got a great relationship with my financial advisor. Unfortunately, another financial advisor that I had died of COVID, actually, he had an underlying health issue. So I had to find a new one. So I found a new one. And the first thing he did on email was he said, do you want to play golf? And I said, no, let's meet. And when we sat down, I said to him, listen, I don't want to play golf with you. I'm not bothered for any form of social interaction. I don't want to go out and drink or any of that. I just want to present you with my financial plans, problems, stuff I need solving, and just get me an answer. I met with him last week. We were together for 20 minutes. And when he left, he went, are you all right with this? I said, yeah, that's exactly what I wanted. I would say I have a brilliantly functional relationship with that person. And there was another sales, uh, well, chief exec, you know, a guy called Dean, who you know. I can remember driving from Leeds to Solly Hull to meet him. I was in the room with him for 15 minutes. He said, right, catch you later. Oh, is that it? He said, what else do you want me to say? Well, we've done our business. No, in fairness, that's the relationship he wanted. He didn't want to be mates with me. He just wanted me to solve his problems. And And that's what a relationship builder does. And then he's given some interview questions to determine internal motivations here. What do you make of these? What's your passion? Do you remember your first sale? What was your experience? Honestly, terrible. don't like this. Just terrible. Tell me about the last three losses you had. That's an all right question. Tell me about adversity that you've had in your personal professional life, how you overcame it. Walk through the structure of a dream compensation plan. How would you guide me to build the next yearly sales comp plan? I I just thought they were awful questions. You know, there's stuff here that I I didn't like this, and I I would say it to Paul and, and, and Mark's face. There's a point they make here. The Harvard Business Review conducted a study that found a team with a member who shares a client's ethnicity is 152% more likely to understand that client than another team. So what he's basically saying is, you've got to make sure that you pay attention to diversity when you're hiring. Now, I've written here, and I'm going to be really honest, I've never read such bollocks in my life. It's hard enough to find talent without splicing the audience with a diversity perspective. I agree with that. And I'm sorry, but in the current job market, it's unbelievably difficult to find real talent anyway. And then what you're telling me is, you're going to give me a job spec that then accounts for a diversity factor that you want to add. Well, actually, firstly, I think that's discriminatory. Well, Johnny, you know this, right? I have recently had an interview with the police to become one of those free coppers. Yeah. And one of their questions was, what do you think of West... That's going to be me. Yeah. What do you think of West Yorkshire's diversity policy? And I said to that man, forcing diversity is in itself racist. Yes. Now, we could get into all sorts of trouble for this particular conversation, so I don't want to stay too long on it. But in hiring, forcing diversity is, is just hiring disaster. I'll tell you now, the one thing you need to concentrate on hiring is, can that person do my job? Full stop. The, the talent pool's too tight in this industry, in this market, to be forcing a diversity issue on somebody. Johnny, it doesn't matter if the talent pool's full of candidates. <laughs> just find the best person to do the job. Full stop. That's it. Yes. And then there's a chapter here on customer success. Customer success. I tell you what's interesting about this is I have a client who run a freemium model. They've got a brilliant product. Right. You download it, and then you're a logo, and that is all driven through customer success. Right. And I think in the world of SaaS, customer success is incredibly important. Oh, yeah. It's not like I can turn up, flog you half a million quid of software and run away because you've got it for 10 years. SaaS, one-year contract easy to get rid of, 
that customer success model is absolutely critical, I think. I had um, a chat with a salesperson from one of the big software vendors today about a marketing automation project we're doing. Uh, I'll report in more detail when we speak about it. And what was interesting was, as we were talking, I was thinking, do you know, one of the vendors in our stack, I haven't heard from them for a year. Mad that, isn't it? They don't care. They don't care how we're doing. And actually, they're going to lose. They're gone. We renewed because we were busy and we didn't have Alex to sort of get into the nub of a lot of those challenges. But actually, when I look at that now, they're gone. They're gone next summer. Done. Bye. But why? Because they haven't invested in customer success. I've not heard from anybody all year. Was we've got another vendor that is hanging in there because actually their customer success team are on top of me. Makes a huge difference. There's no doubt about it. And they're not trying to sell me new shit. They're just on top of my usage. Yeah, and that's not the thing you get in the restaurant. It's if they don't with your food. It's not that. It really annoys me that. Why do they do that? Do you know, but it goes back to the trust and sincerity thing. It annoys me when it lacks sincerity, where they're literally going through the workflow of check table 13 for satisfaction, where they come over and they're already turning around as the words are coming through their mouth. Everything all right with your food, and they're already on their way back to the little waiter hiding hole. What they've not said is, listen, Johnny, you ordered a steak, you ordered it medium rare. Is that is that right? Because actually, it looks a bit dry, actually. Do you want me to sort you out some peppercorn sauce? Yeah. Or, do you know what? I don't like the look of that steak. I'm going to knock a bit off the bill. It's not right. Exactly, yeah. yeah. And that's what, metaphorically, good customer success people do. And actually, with this freemium client I've got, and they're a big company, they've got a lot of cash, they sell often into individual departments. And if they sell into an individual department of a multinational, they say that they can grow the revenue across that business brilliantly with good customer success because that department then becomes an internal reference site in a massive client. You know, we're an SMB, but if you think about if it was a massive company like Coca-Cola or Nike or whatever, and you'd sold to a department, that's where customer success is very important, I think. It is. It is. And then the final chapter is technology sales stack, which we've kind of talked to death a bit, really, haven't we, in the last few weeks? Yes, we have. We have. I mean, is there anything in this that's different from a conversational perspective? Not really. I've not made one note on it. This was much better covered in that superb book, Tech Powered Sales by Tony Hughes. Yeah. So we've come to the end of another book. There's a final chapter on sales leadership through crisis. What's this come up with? To be perfectly honest, they didn't read it, actually. Because I thought, well, the IT industry is far from crisis, so what's the point? Yeah. There's not many companies that are struggling. I did speak to one the other day, a Canvas one, where he said, oh, we've had a really hard year. And you went, what? I was like, what? Big company as well, two, three hundred million pounds. He said, yeah, we've had a terrible year. Apparently what they sell is all around compliance. It just, he was explaining it. I was like, you are literally the only client I've spoken to in about two and a half years who's having a hard time. Yeah, yeah. I, I couldn't believe it that he said they've had a really rough year. He said... I think I don't think I'll get any budget for hiring next year. So I'm just going to have to make do with the guys I've got. And they're so hard to find. I'm going to sort of have to struggle along. And I was like, wow. So what about my score for this book, Johnny? My score for the people that wrote it, nine. I thought they were absolutely top guys. Yeah. My issue with this book is it's terribly named. As you said before, Yeah. it should be Memoirs of Two Professional Sales Leaders. Yeah. Because it's got not much really to do with selling the cloud. No. Nope. Um, there are some nice takeaways in it. There's some nice bits in it where you think, yeah, that's good. That's good. But I feel like there's too many not nice bits in it. It's not bad. I'm going to give it a 
Six and a half. Ditto. That's my view. Six and a half for me. Really liked Paul and Mark. I thought they were top, top guys. I think the biggest problem with the book is there's bits in it that are actually gold. Yes, there's some cracking bits, particularly early on in it as well. Yeah, and it tapers out. It is a little bit of a brain dump of stuff we learned being sales guys. If it was called that, I'd probably give it an eight. Yeah, I mean, it it should be called Stuff We Learned Being Sales Guys that we could turn into a book that we could use as a lead magnet for our consulting business. Yeah, because you'd have them as consultants, I think. Definitely. They're top, top, top guys. Yeah, without a doubt, both of them. And their knowledge, you know, just talking to them on the show last week, I thought their knowledge, what they knew, wow. Completely agree, 100%. Bang on. So... Yes, I do think it's probably the most valuable of the three episodes we've done on this particular part of Book Club has probably been the interview, which was great. So what's our next book, Mike? What's it called? The Qualified Sales Leader by John McMahon. Now, what's interesting about this, this book was recommended to us by a guy who is a top, top, top guy. Yeah. Who is a sales leader. Yeah. Uh, Can I mention his name? I'm going to say his initials are CH. There you go. And... I picked it up and thought, right, dynamite. Got to tell you, it takes a bit of warming up, Johnny, you'll be glad to know. Oh, really? The first bit is written like a trashy novel, but like a badly written trashy novel about salespeople in sales meetings. Right. It was a cold and misty morning. I picked my Starbucks off and the steam came off the top of it as I walked to the sales office. Price of you, you've painted pictures for me here. You talk about track records. This guy's track record is absolutely unbelievable. Right, okay. Let's get it on the show. I think it's worth looking at. I'll start reading it this weekend. Who who did he work for? Uh, John is the only person I know of that has been the head of sales for five different companies. PTC, good start. Wow. Geotel, never heard of him. Ariba, pretty good. Blade Logic, pretty good. And BMC. Wow. (laughs) That's a proper track record, that, isn't it? And he was the chief revenue officer of each. Yeah, 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 yeah. And this is his memoir, basically. Pretty much, yeah, pretty much. Aww. And I read that and went, wow, this is going to be brilliant. And then the first few, I thought, oh, God, come on, man. And then I got into it. Right. So I've got to plough through the first bit to get to the good bit, have I? Definitely, yeah. Definitely. But anyway, let's get back. We were talking about whatever it's called, Selling the Cloud, right. which is the book we've just reviewed. So Great. And the book next up is The Qualified Sales Leader by John McMahon. Remember, guys, if you want to join the debate, keep the debate going. You can get into a conversation on the Discord server. All you need is to message us and we'll set you up. And it's a private place where fans of book club can hang out and talk and join a real book club. And we'll probably do some calls and chats and stuff on there. It'll all be very interesting. And we can pretend we're cool because we're on Discord. Sounds cool. Mike won't come on it. Never heard of it, actually. And at that, we bid you goodbye and we'll see you next week. Bye-bye.